Hello everyone, my name is Andrew and welcome back to the McGill International Review. There is this public health crisis that the U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has been trying to get people to be more aware of over the past few years. He believes that the country is facing this really terrible epidemic, but it's not, it's not COVID and it's not any kind of virus that has the potential to kill millions of people. It's something a lot more subtle, but still nevertheless very sinister and has the potential to have very negative effects on all of us. From his point of view, and I guess mine as well, the country is facing an epidemic of loneliness. It is hard to overstate how important social interaction is. Now that might seem pretty self-explanatory, but if it is, it's an obvious fact that we often forget. Studies have shown that lacking in meaningful social interaction can be just as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it would be pretty bad if we ever try to make changes to our society intentionally or unintentionally to sequester ourselves off, make ourselves a little bit more privatized, and it would have been even worse if we built our entire lives in a way that would skew this obvious fact. But unfortunately, that's what some of us have been doing. And I guess that brings us to the topic of today. Sheila Liming is the author of the book Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. And it's a book about, you guessed it, hanging out and what it means in the context of modern society. I brought her on to talk more about how we can reconnect with others as a way to reconnect with that bit of ourselves and how we can break the trends of loneliness that some of us have been experiencing in society. Hope you enjoy. Sheila Liming, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Absolutely. Happy to be here. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess let's begin with like the core conceit of your book and what it means. So to begin, how would you define hanging out and what it means to hang out? Is it like, is it a skill? Is it a structure? Is it something else entirely? How much planning is needed, et cetera, et cetera? I think of hanging out as a kind of state of existence um, and it has activity built into it, but I try not to think of it too much as a skill, meaning something that you can be good at or bad at. Rather, it's more, I think, about something that like you either prioritize and make time for and do, or you don't have any time to do it and then you don't do it. Um, so in the book, I, do, I define hanging out as um, daring to do very little and daring to do it in the company of others. Um, so what I'm referring to there is really like unstructured social time or lightly structured social time. Many of the examples that I provide in the book do have some kind of structure associated with them. Like I have a chapter on dinner parties. I have a chapter on parties. There's some kind of structure there, but the point is that there's still a lot of improvisation that comes into play. So even though it's, you know, there's a, there's an occasion that creates the hanging out. The whole point is that you kind of exist in a casual way with other people. Yeah. Um, but then I guess it brings us to the core conceit of like where society is right now, how we evaluate hanging out. Um, so there's obviously though the whole thing that Vivek Murthy has described the U.S. in basically like a state of emergency in terms of like lacking in social interaction. So I guess um, my two questions are A, would you elaborate on like the sort of 
dearth, a like the sort of dearth of healthy social interaction, I guess someone like Richard Reeves might frame it as a friendship recession. And then mm -hmm. second of all, how did we get here? What decisions have we collectively made in our quest, for example, for something like endless productivity that might have led us to feel boxed in and less of what ourselves should be? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I cite from the U.S. Surgeon General from his previous book um, in the introduction to my book where I'm talking about this, you know, situation where we have come to a point in modern life where we do less hanging out and also where we like have less access to the conditions of hanging out, you know, um, that is just something that seems harder to achieve. And of course, the Surgeon General recently termed this an epidemic of loneliness, thinking of it as a kind of health crisis because there are real like health catastrophes that come as the result of not having social contact. He's thinking about that on, a, on an individual level, like what it does to a person. I'm also thinking about it on a systemic level, like what it does to our culture, what it does to our society, what it does to our neighbors, our towns, and then also what it does to our functioning democracies as well. Yeah, like um, it's not it's not community. just as bad as 15 cigarettes a day. It's like worse, even worse <laughs> than that, like on a systemic level. Right, right, level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has this line in his book where he says that the human body is conditioned to read loneliness as emergency. That basically it puts you into this state of hypervigilance that actually contributes to things like heart disease and like increased risk of stroke and things like that. So, of course, he's thinking at it on a very like real medical level. And I'm just kind of drawing out conclusions from that and applying them to a larger way of seeing it as a practice that exists in our society. Um, but with regards to your second question about how we got here, um, that's a complicated thing. And, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about um, personal digital devices and technology, but I don't want to put all the blame on those devices because one, I don't think they're the root cause. Like they're not the only thing that has made yeah. hanging out difficult. Like it's very easy to attribute them as like a monocausal explanation yes. when in reality there might be other factors at play. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally true. And on um, second too, um, they also like, you know, many of us, our digital devices are actually useful in defraying what we would say the state of loneliness as well. So, you know, many of us like, you know, are sustained by social discourse that we have online or through our computer screens like you and I are doing right now or whatever it happens to be. And we, of course, all know that, you know, during the many years of the COVID pandemic, those devices were very important to us. Like we we would have been probably worse off without them and, and in a really difficult place. So it's not just digital technology, but I do talk about how our reliance on digital devices and the kind of hanging out that we do when we're using them to hang out with other people, how that has altered our ability to hang out in person, in part by making us, I think, a little bit more impatient with what that experience is like and what we um, what we run into when we're running out with people in like, you know, in person. So partially it's digital technology, but it's not wholly. And then in the book, I also explore issues like the lack of public space. So spaces in which you can gather and hang out, um, the lack of time, like schedules, you know, preventing us from basically having time that we can spend with other people in our leisure time, that sort of thing. Yeah, honestly, thinking about your answer, I feel like there are like half a dozen ways to continue off of that. Um, but just good, good. Pick whichever one feels good to you. <laughs> yeah, just to pick one, I guess when it comes to digital technology um, and the way that it often serves as a diminished substitute of the type of interaction that we could have. So you you talked a little bit in, say, the conclusion of your book about this conflict that you would have with your friend and how it was a lot more productive because of the fact that it was in person compared to online. So could you elaborate a little bit on A, your story and B, the ways in which like us talking on Zoom or 
talking via call or the absolute worst would just be like text communication online. The ways mm-hmm. that that might obfuscate necessary conflict in a way that can't really be done in person. Yeah, certainly. Um, so in the end of the book, in the conclusion, which I call how to hang out, um, I start off by, you know, talking about a kind of like a story and experience that I had that could have gone very differently had I been hanging out in a different format or via a different medium than I was. So I was with my friend and I was in a bar and I was in Milwaukee. Um, I was actually there for a conference and he had come up on the train from Chicago to visit me for the day. And so we were just hanging out together and spending some time. And we've known each other for a really long time since college. And we were in this bar and we were having some drinks and we got into a bit of an argument. Um, And, you know, this is not the first time my friend and I have gotten into an argument. We're kind of argumentative people in general. Um, But this one felt sort of big. You know, we, we had a fundamental disagreement that we had sort of stumbled upon with each other. And I, you know, we were able to sort of work it out. We stayed in that bar for about three hours and we kept drinking our drinks. And then eventually we kind of came to this sort of like consensus that actually there were things we could agree on, even though we were agreeing on some some big things about like how we wanted to go about seeing these changes that we were both discussing. And so, you know, we ended up working it out, but I kept thinking about how differently that would have gone down if, say, it had been a Zoom call or if it had been a text message conversation or if I'd been talking to him on social media, where it is so easy to walk away from and exit the conversation. It takes very little to leave and it takes a lot of stamina to stay. And I think that's what makes online discourse and online hanging out so different from the kind that we you know, would expect to do in person is in person, we don't have those same kinds of immediate exits. And so if we you know, shift to a life where we're primarily doing that kind of hanging out that happens on the internet, where we have all those exits that are always available to us, it makes us more impatient with the work of hanging out itself. Um, and my worry is that it makes us less patient with each other as well. Yeah, like I know in my life, I have, I have some friends with from with which I argue with a lot on many different subjects, for example, like politics. And I know that I know that a lot of these conversations, they're infinitely more productive because of the fact that they happen in person. Whereas mm-hmm. if we were doing them online, there might be a lo- much more of an incentive to sort of retreat and like like angrily stew on it by yourself. Exactly. Um, yeah, but then exactly. that like that brings us to a bit of like a more general discussion about conflict in social interaction in general. So like what are some times that you've hung out with others in a way that to you felt a little bit tense or like a little bit more prone to conflict? And like a what are some lessons that you've learned with regards to dealing with those situations? And B, how do we prevent those experiences from discouraging us from trying to go out of our way to hang out? further in the future? Yeah, Um, that's an interesting question. And, you know, it's almost difficult for me to think of a specific example because they're so numerous. Um, I think, you know, if you commit to being like a person in the social world, you're going to run into occasions pretty often, like on a pretty regular basis, where you feel a little bit irritated or a little bit tense based on like, how the hanging out is going or or what the conversation is about or something like that. So, um, you know, I would say that it's, It's not uncommon for me in the course of an average week to find myself in some sort of polite social situation where somebody is spouting off some kind of a political opinion that I don't agree with. And, you know, that could be colleagues, that could be my neighbors, that could be like, 
you know, people in the town that I live in, it could be all kinds of different people, but it, it happens quite often. And, you know, I would say one of the things that I've tried to focus on in those interactions is like, first of all, not taking the disagreement personally, um, you know, trying to realize that like somebody disagreeing or somebody even having this opinion that might like initially like sort of offend me or bother me, that it's not personally directed towards me, that it probably comes out of something else. And then, you know, second, try to understand the complications that are associated with those viewpoints without necessarily indulging them too much. So it's like, you know, if I hear someone spouting racist attitudes, I'm not going to ask them to like, oh, yeah, go on about your opinions about racism or whatever. Um, I'm going to shut that down as much as I can or ignore it. But at the same time, too, I try to understand that, you know, these interactions that we have are always more complicated than they seem on the surface. Right. Um, so it's not quite necessarily like saying that you have to entertain all opinions and tolerate all behavior, but more just understanding that that spectrum of opinion and behaviors exists and you're just going to run into it. And it doesn't have to mean that, like, you know, the option is staying inside your house and never talking to anyone you disagree with. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, so uh, to segue into a completely different topic, um, <laughs> what are what are some ways in which socialization gets harder and harder as we keep getting older? Like, there's a lot of talk. Um, so like, I guess um, I might bring up this one study that Ezra Klein brought up when he was talking to you because you got, you made it onto the Ezra Klein show, which I think is really cool. But um, th like this whole, there's this whole idea that socialization gets harder and harder as we keep yeah. getting older. Have you personally experienced that? Do you feel like there like certain structures get less and less oriented towards hanging out in your own time? And if so, how do you deal with that personally? Yeah, definitely. It's it's something that I've certainly personally experienced. And, you know, I reflect on some of those personal experiences in the book as the basis for some of the arguments that I'm making, too. Um, but I don't think it's just me. Um, I think it's more widespread than that. And I think it has to do with a number of factors. One thing, of course, is time that the older we get, we get just busier in general until we don't anymore. Right. So there's this there's this kind of cliff that happens in later age when all of a sudden we need those social contacts that we missed out on making in all those years when we were really, really busy. But yeah, I mean, as you age into adulthood, into maturity and especially into like some kind of career, we just tend to get busier and busier as we go along. And, you know, part of this has to do with the fact that every job these days feels like 15 jobs all rolled into one. Um, part of it, I think, has to do with the way that we like schedule ourselves with the way that we arrange our lives and our priorities around like these various tasks that we have to do and everything like that in our Google calendars, etc. Um, so part of it is like just actually being busy. And the second, I think, has to do with what we allow ourselves to do as adults and the permission that we give ourselves to sort of hang out casually and exist with other people. This is something that we rarely begrudge children, even teenagers. You know, we say like, oh, they're spending time with their friends. That's a good thing. Of course, I would want my child to do this. Or of course, I would want my teenager to be engaging in a social life or something like that. But then something happens when you get into your later 20s and you start building a career and a family and everything else that suddenly that priority is no longer seen as important enough to receive like special treatment in your calendar. And now spending time with friends is taking away from your job or it's taking away from your family or it's taking away from these other priorities that you have set up for yourself. So it becomes very complicated. You know, it starts with time, but it also becomes about, I think, the things that we give ourselves permission to do. And because hanging out with friends is seen as not really accomplishing anything, um, the older we get and the busier we get, the harder it is for us to give ourselves permission to do that. Yeah. And I think you had like 
you had your own story about when it came to trying to find your own job trajectory. You moved around the U.S. a lot. And there's this quote that you had, which I thought was kind of interesting, like that you were like one of the important things for you was making the experience of a college education and like the fruits of that education worthwhile. And the way you did it would be by continuously chasing what we were told to expect was supposed to come out of that degree in the first place. So -hmm. could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm an academic, you know, I'm a college professor. So in my particular case, um, that chase has been a long one. A lot of people compare a career in academia in the US, especially to sort of like being in the military, like you don't necessarily have control over where you're going to end up. And you will be asked to move around a lot because, you know, first through education and then from job to job or postdocs or research positions or whatever. So it's a long trajectory. It's one where you don't always feel like you have a lot of control. But, you know, I also think that it's one where you feel like you become invested in this feeling that you're trying to make, you know, this is the sunk cost fallacy, basically, that you're trying to make all the all the investments you've made up until that point worthwhile. And as education in the United States becomes more and more expensive, that sunk cost fallacy becomes even more burdensome. And it weighs even like heavier upon us because now it's not just like, okay, you spent eight years studying this thing, but maybe it's also like you spent eight years and tens of thousands of dollars studying that thing and you're still in debt from it. So of course you're going to try to continue chasing, you know, that reprieve that you're going to get or that payoff that is supposed to be at the end of that. Um, It makes things difficult, but in terms of social life and hanging out, it also means that you're constantly reinventing yourself. You're reinventing a new social community every couple of years, you know, depending on where you land and who's around you. And you're also doing it for academics like me, you're also doing it in the midst of other people who have been moving around a lot too. So those people can evaporate at any moment, they can take a new job, they can move on, you know, they can um, they can end up with better offers or something like that, or they can end up just sort of leaving the profession and disappearing that way. And that makes that social situation very tenuous. Um, it's never really stable feeling. It's like something that you're always kind of renegotiating at every stage. But what's more, I actually think that this is something that I'm seeing in a lot of other industries outside of academia, too. Um, My partner works in software, and it's something that I see, you know, through his work in software as well. So it's not just limited to my personal experiences, too. Yeah. Um, So I guess for you, what would you say would have been some of the hardest difficulties when it comes to trying to constantly reorient yourself into that new environment? (laughs) Uh, Like maybe it might be partially motivated from an attempt to avoid the sunk cost fallacy, but do you think you've learned some interesting ideas from it? Yeah, um, certainly. And, you know, I'll start with some of the challenges associated with it. Um, Every new place I've ever moved to has its own way of hanging out. There are some things that are shared, you know, like obviously certain places or certain kinds of practices you're gonna find are uniform from place to place, but it tends to be that there are um, idiosyncratic cultures of hanging out that exist away from public spaces, mostly like inside people's houses or something like that. And so in domestic and private spaces, and you have to know people to get invited into those spaces. So it's not like you just show up and then somebody invites you in and that's how it all starts. You have to kind of get your way into a crowd or a friendship or a social scene before you're going to have access to those spaces. People who have lived in a certain place forever will already have access to those spaces. It kind of comes with the territory. But if you're new in town, you have to find your way into them. And that can be really difficult Um, because, yeah, it does require like being outgoing. It requires taking risks. It requires experimenting with friendships and social connections and not all of them work out. And, you know, that's one of the challenges that comes from that um, experience, too. Yeah, the I guess it's a matter of like 
you have to open yourself up and you also have to not be afraid of like this, this doesn't work, but I'm going to keep trying. Right, yeah. right, exactly. I guess that kind of reminds me of the the chapter in your book where you talked about the process of hanging out with strangers. I, I must confess for like a large portion of me reading the book, I thought it was just going to be like the story of like a cautionary tale. Um, <laughs> but it, it, you sort of turned it on its head a little bit towards the end. So could you talk a little bit about maybe like... May, I might have misinterpreted it, but do you think this is like the the chapter was really about trying to bask in like the unpredictability and I guess by extension vulnerability that comes with hanging out with strangers? Yeah, and and I think that's actually a very nice way of putting it. Um, basking in the unpredictability, I like that phrase. Um, so in the chapter, you know, I talk about an experience that I had many years ago when I was traveling by myself due to sort of strange circumstances. Um, and I was alone in a city where I didn't really know anybody and it was New Year's and I was like, well, I'm not going to stay inside by myself. I got to go out and meet people and find some friends. And so I talk about the experience of attempting to and then succeeding in hanging out with strangers and having a great night in which nothing disastrous happened. Um, I just had a good time and I didn't end up with a cautionary tale. But I balance out that story with um, a close reading of a film that I'm talking about, a film called Victoria that was made in the 2010s. Um, it's a it's a German film um, that stars a Spanish actress who's doing something very similarly. And in that movie, everything goes wrong. Right? Like this girl is out on the town in a similar way that I was. She's by herself. She's trying to make friends in a city where she doesn't live, where she barely speaks the language. And she like gets in with this crowd of people and things just start to escalate. They start very small with like some petty theft and then they move up to drug use and then they moved up to armed robbery and then they move up to murder, right? So it's like one thing just folds after the other. And I was using that, you know, example of the film, not simply because I, I really like the film. I think it's very interesting, but also because I think that's often what we think of when we consider the risks of what it means to hang out with strangers is like, well, where is this going to go? What's the worst thing that could happen? What disasters await me if I don't know how to predict the outcome of this situation? So in my particular case, the story that I was telling, nothing bad happened. It was completely fine. It wasn't a cautionary tale. But I, I think the stories that we're more exposed to on an average basis, you know, through media, through television and movies, they're the ones that are going to sensationalize those events for us. Yeah. And maybe that's a product of like the reason why those stories tend to get sensationalized is that we tend to view um, like talking to strangers, opening ourselves up in that sort of way, like as being an inherent product of needing that level of caution. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Like, I think you you brought up, like in, in your Ezra Klein guest appearance, you brought up that story about um, how a lot of the time young adults, um, the reason why people like us might prefer social media is because if we're just sitting in a class and like there are people next to us that we don't know, we might be afraid of opening ourselves up just because of that sense of awkwardness. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, social discourse when you're in a room full of strangers or even a room full of like semi strangers. So like in a college classroom where you might even have things in common with those people, you might even know their names and a little bit about them, but you don't really know them that well. I think that sense of social discourse comes with this feeling of risk and that there is, you know, fear built into the risk because you don't know exactly what to expect from the outcome. But I also think that there is increasingly a sense of judgment that's going to come along with that too. There's this fear that like, if you're going to be the weird one to start talking to a stranger, everyone in the room is going to look like you like you're crazy or, you know, like end up socially ostracizing you before you even begin. So I think there's a fear sometimes that 
trying to engage in social discourse is going to accomplish the opposite results is going to accomplish rejection. And I think that's one of the reasons why many of us avoid it. And instead we navigate towards the spaces where we know we aren't going to be rejected, whether that's texting with a friend or a family member, or like going onto a social media platform where we know a bunch of followers or whatever. Um, those spaces feel comparatively safer and like they carry fewer risks than opening yourself up to a stranger, even just for a second. Yeah, even though like opening yourself up to a stranger that might actually be like more healthy for you both mentally and as the research shows physically. Um, yeah, and and yeah. even just from like a basic context, you know, that's another person you now know in your class who can like help you later down the road if you have a question about something too, right? <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess I would be kind of remiss if I did this entire episode without sharing any personal details whatsoever, so what the hell why not? Um so I I am I'm an introvert. I think that affects the way that I interact with people sometimes. But I think some of the time what I find really interesting is that like I act introverted towards extroverts, but I act extroverted towards introverts. So like sometimes <laughs> I I feel more comfortable talking to complete strangers than people I might know nominally, where like for people that I might know nominally, there seems to be some kind of like pressure within myself, like unconsciously, like sub on a subconscious level. There's some level of like, I need to like keep up this idea that I've made out for myself. Whereas when I'm talking to strangers, there's like no risk, whatever. And like, they, I know that like everyone else, like partly from the research and partly I can tell from like social cues that if they might be afraid of that certain level of creating that certain level of awkwardness, that means that I can come in, create that awkwardness and then just make a joke about it. And yeah, then it's all fine. And dandy. that's really interesting. And like some good self-awareness on your part that you even see that happening. Um, yeah. I, I think that's true of many people, but I think we don't always take stock of it and like notice how we're responding in situations like that to this feeling of seeing extroversion or introversion in someone else and how we like, you know, sort of adjust our own behavior in response to it. It yeah. reminds me of how many, many years ago I was in a group job interview. I don't know if you've ever done a group job interview. This is where like five candidates interview simultaneously all in the same room together. It's like one of the most stressful experiences I've ever been in my life. And even though the job that I was interviewing for was somewhat low stakes, it was going to be a temporary position. Um, but I, you know, I think of myself as a kind of extrovert. And in that moment, I completely failed to rise to the occasion as an extrovert because everybody else in the room was so much more extroverted than me. And it actually just made me want to like sit back and not be part of anything. I like couldn't get a word in edgewise through the whole interview. And of course I didn't get the job because that was the point. It was like, can you shout down the other people in this room to rise as the number one extrovert in the room and then you'll get the job. It was a ridiculous situation, but I feel like a lot of life ends up being in one way or another kind of structured like that. You know, you run into those situations situations a lot where people appear to be competing for space in a social scenario. Yeah. But then that kind of reminds me, like in your introduction, you sort of emphasize the fact that you don't want to see yourself as an authority on hanging out, which would be kind of weird. Like, it's not like you can get a PhD in like a major about like hanging out with people. Right. You're more like, like to quote you, you see yourself as more of like a docent or a zealously informed volunteer. You don't want to mm -hmm. lecture. You want to take us through this gallery with like portraits of accidents. So it's only partly, partly a manifesto and partly an invitation to just like wander around and allow us to meander. So mm -hmm. could you talk a, a little bit through the ways that like you can't really like give definitive instructions uh, partly because different people might act differently, but also partly because it ruins the point because hanging out is supposed to have some degree of spontaneity to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, because I think of hanging out as an activity or a set of activities that are based on improvisation, on creating something in the moment and doing so with a lot of kind of negotiation and like casualness. Um, it's not something where you can write prescribed rules like here you go, this is what will make successful hanging out happen for you. So in the book, you know, even though I titled the last chapter how to hang out, I try to resist that sort of authoritative guide impulse. Um, I try to resist giving too many rules. Um, and instead, you know, I offer what I what I call cues um, that are just like, here's some things that help. But I don't want to think about it as like a like, you know, um, a win or lose scenario that you succeed at it or you fail at it or you're good at it or you're bad at it. It's more like this situation that's like either you do it, you give yourself permission to do it and you create the conditions to do it or you don't. It's something that's difficult for you to do. Um, and I think that, you know, um, part of why I did that is because as I was writing the book, I was having conversations with people about hanging out. I was talking to my friends, I was talking to my students, I was talking to my colleagues about it. And I did get varying responses along those lines, including from some people who, you know, I think identify as introverts in one way or another, who would tell me things like, I don't think I know how to hang out or I don't know how to hang out anymore is another interesting one that I heard, you know, sort of saying like, I once knew, but I forgot how. It's like a muscle, you have to, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's that's a metaphor that I come back to a lot in the book, this feeling that it's like something that has to be exercised. So it's less a game where you have to memorize the rules in order to succeed. And it's more like an exercise that you do without a particular end in mind, but the more you do it, the easier it gets, you know, and the more that muscle is able to rebound next time and do it again. Yeah. But then I guess that brings us to the question of like when you're trying to avoid specific instructions, obviously a lot of this is like you're very pleasantly inviting us to come meander around the hills with you. Um, <laughs> but do you ever feel like when you were to give certain like prescriptions about hanging out, do you ever like do you ever worry that it might be only generalizable to a specific group, like a spe like a specific personality type or a specific demographic or a specific class or anything like that? Well, I certainly try to take different personality types into account. And even though, you know, I'm offering what you can think of as general guidelines um, or advice. And I'm also, you know, as you already quoted from, I'm also providing this kind of tour in accidents of modern living and accidents of hanging out, which means both the good and the bad. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that not everybody's going to find all those examples relatable, um, that they're not necessarily going to see their experiences matching up with my own. That's okay. They don't have to. Um, and also that, you know, some of the like guidelines and advice that I offer are going to be more difficult for some people than they are going to be for others. Um, for some people, they're going to say, yeah, it's, it's not a problem for me to prioritize making friends or making time for my friends. Maybe I've already arranged my life in a way where that's important to me and I already do that. For other people, that can feel really, really difficult, um, you know, depending on what their life is set up alike and, and how comfortable they feel actively trying to do that um, and enter into those situations. Um, I was giving a talk at a library here where I live in Vermont about two months ago, and there was a person in the audience who came to the talk. Um, this was an older gentleman, like probably in his 60s or 70s. And he was like, oh, I'm on the waiting list to get your book from the library right now. But I'm really curious. Do you like do you tell us how to hang out? Because that's what I'm looking to find out how to do. And I was like, well, yes and no. <laughs> like, I offer some advice, but I, I can't actually tell you how to do this. It's going to depend, like you said, Andrew, on your personality, on your own proclivities, your own habits, etc. Yeah. And do you think it might also like um, 
be dependent on living environment. Maybe like yeah. like your own ideas about how it, like hanging out works well. That's different depending on if you live in a city compared to the suburbs or compared to a rural area. Yeah. Um, do you think there like do you think there are specific like areas in which it is easier to socialize than others? Yeah. Um, I do think that to some degree, um, urban settings, you know, promote socialization a little bit better than rural settings do. And I say that with the, you know, understanding that I currently live in a somewhat rural setting and I, I recently moved from a rural setting, um, at least from two states that are more or less rural. And so that's something that I've had a lot of chance to reflect on because I was, you know, born and raised in a city. I spent a lot of my 20s living in a city and I mentioned that in the book. And then when I got to my 30s, suddenly I was living in much more rural environs. And one of the things I realized is that in rural places, there's a lack of communal space where you meet up with other people and you just sort of casually run into them. And those casual interactions become the bedrock of your understanding of your community and your neighbors and your friends and everything like that. It's more difficult to access those spaces in rural communities, not only because there are fewer of them, but they also tend to be further away, which means that there's more sacrifice required to get to them. And then you don't spend as much time in them once you're there, you kind of get there and you leave. So like, you know, a grocery store being a kind of example, if you have to travel really, really far to get to one um, and you're very focused on what you need to do and what you need to go on with what to do without your day, you're not gonna spend any time hanging out and talking to the people that you meet there or something like that. Um, so yeah, it, it does depend on what your living circumstances are. And one of the things that, you know, I try to argue for in the book is the preservation of and the reclamation of these kinds of spaces um, to whatever ability is possible for us. In cities, I think that means like, you know, um, thinking about urban planning and actually setting space aside to make these kinds of interactions happen and allow for them. In rural spaces, it means like trying to find ways that people in rural spaces can access um, those types of places and you know find a way to get to them um whether that is you know through shared transportation or whether that's through having them in their own communities yeah um but to change the subject again uh one of like one of the one study i found that was really interesting was just like when it came to the like young adults aged 18 to 24 um like for example many college students probably fall in that category i was kind of shocked by how many of them actually report feeling lonely? 79%, almost yeah. four out of five. Um, so you mentioned how a little bit, how a little bit of it might be social media, how a little bit might have been might just be like fear of like talking to other people, like risk of judgment, risk of just like a tendency that we need, like a tendency we have in society to desire to avoid awkwardness. But that like it still stands that we got to that 79% number at this point. Um, how do you, how do you think we can, what steps do you think society can take to sort of claw its way back to something more reasonable? Yeah, that is an interesting question. It's a big question. It's the question that has inspired a lot of my thinking in the book. Um, and it's one that doesn't come with easy answers, um, either. Um, you know, I'm going to go back again towards thinking about digital technology in particular social media. Um, I'm not necessarily arguing for like less use of social media. And, you know, I, I, it would be silly if I did even because like I'm a user of social media and at certain points in my life that has been very important for me, like when I found myself living in rural areas without friends. So, oh, okay. What, what about less social media for like, like the specifically youngest age demographics? Yeah. Yeah, but with regards to younger populations, and I would say that a lot of my thinking in this book was inspired by my interactions with college age students here in the US, the type of you know population that I interact with mostly through my work. 
Um, with regards to those generations and to the fact that they are rising out of high school and out of like adolescence and late adolescence, um, I think it requires not just adjusting our perceptions about how much social media is good and how we use it, but also, you know, thinking about the fact that social media when used well really ought to be sort of like a tool or a springboard towards other kinds of social interactions rather than an endpoint in itself that the point is not to go on instagram or twitter and to make ten thousand friends or followers who you've never met before but that the point was to find another way into conversations that could turn into social situations of their own and i think what often ends up happening instead for young people and where this feeling of anxiety and loneliness comes from is when it starts to feel like social media is all they have. So all they have are those people who they know online and they don't have anybody immediately around them. I use the example in the book of one of the students that I was talking to in this academic recovery group who said that like the number one thing that she thought would help her to recover and get her grades back on crack would be a real friend who she had in person. And it was like really um, ironic, of course, because we were in you know a room full of people her age at the time when she was like telling us this and also reflecting on the fact that she said all of her good friends were people she did not know who she knew through social media. So I think it partially requires adjusting our perceptions and encouraging, you know, particularly young people and young users of social media to adjust their perceptions too. To think of social media itself not necessarily as an endpoint, but as a means towards achieving other kinds of social interaction and discourse. Yeah. And maybe the most important thing would just be to find a way to like destigmatize awkwardness, I guess. Maybe yeah, that's one right. of the most important things. Yeah, no kidding. Because like life is awkward, right? It's it's often awkward. If you're going to try to like live your life by avoiding awkwardness, you're not going to leave the house very often. <laughs> yeah, I think awkwardness is actually one of the most, like is often one of the most necessary things in life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I was <laughs> going to try to find a way to slot a joke here, but I can't think of anything. So uh, moving on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a completely, completely different question, of course, as always. Um, one of the the strands of your work that I found interesting is the whole stuff about family, how we often have relatively narrow definitions of what it means, like to for like what a family is. And so could you um, this is going to sound like a complete non sequitur, but whatever. Could you elaborate on the ways in which a nuclear family is often akin to a hostage situation? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so this is this is a funny question. Um, and it's it's not a non sequitur. It's totally related to everything we're talking about. But um, in the book, but it's, I, it's I best to present of, it as such for the sake of a joke. Yes. yes. <laughs> in the book, I, I think I do talk around the concept of family a lot. Um, it's not something that I deal with directly. Like I don't have a chapter called hanging out with your family. Um, but it's something that I think is existing there in the background in a lot of what I'm saying. Um, and when I was on the Ezra Klein show, Ezra Klein asked me about this in a, in a kind of pointed way with regards to an article that had been um, published in The Atlantic by David Brooks, which was called, Was the Nuclear Family a Mistake? I mean, it was a, um, you know, a purposefully sort of like antagonistic style argument um, that Brooks had written, but there were some interesting points to it. And I remember I had paid attention to it when I first saw it came out too. And it, it reminded me of the work of a scholar named Sophie Lewis, who has a book called Full Surrogacy Now, which I ended up quoting on the show, um, in which she talks about the sort of limitations of the nuclear family and also um, about the way that our expectations for what the nuclear family is supposed to do and its functions in the world 
end up becoming very burdensome. They, they create these boundaries where it becomes difficult to seek help and to seek you know, support and other kinds of things outside of the container of the nuclear family. And so, you know, in summarizing Sophie Lewis's work, um, I referred to the family as a hostage situation because I think that's one way to understand her arguments, that it's um, a container which you are born into or brought into by other means that you don't necessarily get to consent to. And then after you're there, um, you are expected to perform a kind of emotional label, labor towards the other people who are contained in that unit. And that can be very difficult, especially when um, it makes a person feel like it's difficult to reach beyond that container and access support systems or friends or things like that that lie outside of it. But I also think, you know, in at least modern American society here with regards to the aging question, this is something that we're really seeing um, like coming to bear in a level of crisis, which is that, you know, when members of your family age, what are you supposed to do when it comes to caring for them or extending the care of their life? Where do those burdens fall? If they fall squarely on the members of a nuclear family and that family's small, that can become really difficult for people. Um, and it makes life quite hard. It is also related to that epidemic of loneliness that our US Surgeon General was talking about because in particular, he was also citing people over the age of 65 as being one of those key demographics that experiences loneliness too. Yeah. Um, but I guess the question is, how do we, how do we crawl our way out of it? How do we, how do we find some kind of reconciliation with the argument that David Brooks was making in that piece? Um, how do we, like you, you've mentioned that you sort of try to advocate for expanding our definition of a family. To what mm -hmm. extent would it be like trying to connect with long lost, like distant relatives? And to what extent is it like trying to open ourselves up more and to the extent that it is the latter, how, like, do you have any advice for trying to calibrate that in our everyday lives? Yeah, I'm thinking about it on both fronts, um, both with regards to what you just said about, like, expanding our notions of the family to include even relatives that we might feel like we have, like, only a tangential biological relation to, rather than focusing so much attention on the biological family and the nuclear family itself. So just, you know, parents and immediate offspring of parents. Um, but thinking larger in terms of generations and also like lines within the family. Um, so I'm very grateful that since moving to Vermont, I've become very close with my partner's second cousins who randomly enough just happened to live here. When we moved here, we'd never met them before. My partner didn't even know they existed. We met them, we started getting close to them, and now they're a big part of our lives. We are only barely related to them, and I'm not related to them at all. Um, but because, you know, we have some connections in common and because we live close to each other, we are now able to sort of like come and go from each other's lives in a way that feels really gratifying um, and somewhat seamless. So that's one side of it. But on the other side of it, outside of the question of biology, I'm also thinking about expanding our understandings of the family to think about what first we think families are for. Like what is supposed to be contained in that term? Is it love? Is it support? Is it, you know, encouragement? Is it material um, support? And then thinking about where else we get those things from, whether it is friends, whether it is colleagues, whether it's mentors that we have through education, things like that. Because um, I want to think of the family as a more sort of porous structure than the way the nuclear family has been traditionally conceived of. And that can include not just people that you're actually related to through blood or biology, but also just people who give you the things that a family would traditionally give you. I think there's another strand that I found endlessly fascinating, which is like 
how in the U.S. a lot of these um, structures that we've built up for ourselves might be an unfortunate pro like product of trying to emphasize productivity and individualism. You have this quote um, going. I'm I'm just going to keep going back to the Ezra Klein show guest appearance, I guess, um, <laughs> where you say, "quote In the U.S., privacy and private space are synonymous with pride. They are viewed as the basic ingredients of pride. It's difficult to feel proud of yourself if you lack them." So. Could you talk a little bit about how certain like cultural norms in the U.S. may have fostered a problematic culture when it comes to hanging out? Yeah, um, I think when you know when I'm thinking about private space and its relationship to pride um, or to this feeling of like dignity and honor, um, particularly in American culture, I'm thinking about private property and I'm thinking about pride of ownership. Um, and private property is the law of the land in the United States. It has been, you know, effectively since its founding, but it's something that really structures um, the way that we understand our society and our culture, and um, also the way that we move around and experience our lives in the world, right? Um, there's this constant feeling of like, am I in a place I'm allowed to be, or am I in somebody else's space where I am not welcome? And um, I think our, you know, anxieties and fears about private property and protecting what we perceive as ours um, are really causing us a lot of strife right now in our culture um, and causing a lot of um, very extreme reactions sometimes to when we feel like our private property is being like infringed upon um, or violated in one way or another. Um, and I think a lot of like social fears, particularly in American culture, are stoked by that feeling that somebody may be trespassing metaphorically or figuratively um, upon what you or, or literally upon what you see as yours. So I would say the concept of private property, first of all, the attaining of it. And then second, the like maintaining of it, the keeping of it and making sure that it's yours um, is really central to like the American viewpoint. But that's also something that creates problems between us because that creates space and division and boundaries. Um, it makes it hard to be a guest in someone's house. It makes it hard to enter into public space without feeling like you know how to be there or whether or not you belong. And it also makes public space itself um, less uh, feasible to maintain since we have this constant race for private property where uh, pu public space is constantly being brought up. I just read this very weird thing this morning and this just made me think of it. For instance, so in the United States, beaches are public property. You can control access to the beach, but you can't own the beach itself, right? So this means that like, say in Florida, you can walk down the beach in Florida. It may be really hard to get on the beach because all the property leading up to it is private. But once you're there, you're there and you can own it. But I didn't know that in certain other countries, this is not the case. And I was just reading about a public beach that was located, I believe, on the Isle of Antigua in the Caribbean that was bought by the actor Robert De Niro. And it was previously like a public park for people and he bought it and turned it into a private beach. So I was thinking about like what we do when we take public space and turn it into something private and basically say nobody else is allowed to be here. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's, it's well, so to me, obviously, it's endlessly fascinating how different drives towards, say, individualism or like the idea of private property and like all that sequesterization might play a role in the U.S. But mm -hmm. do you think are there any like specific countries that you think do a much better job like from a cultural viewpoint in terms of cultivating community rather than competition or like um, private property or the metaphor, whatever, what that is meant to be a metaphor for. Yeah. 
Um, you know, well, I'm always sort of like hesitant when it comes to like talking about how other countries do things, you know, just because my own nationalistic viewpoint is as an American, that's where I've been born and raised. I spent lots of time in other countries, but I always feel a little bit like I don't want to like romanticize the way that other countries work too much, because that's something that Americans always tend to do. The grass is always greener. And we're often looking at, you know, other systems and thinking about how much better that would be. However, um, you know, there are countries that I've been to and visited and spent time in where I do feel like there is a greater emphasis on existing in public and on taking up public space without feeling like there's this stigma of being like a vagrant or something. Um, so I'm thinking basically of the way that in the US, if you are existing in public space without doing anything, you are often seen as being a problem that needs to be controlled. So something that needs to be got out of that space so we can save it for the people who are using it correctly. Whereas, say for example, um, a country like Sweden, which I've spent some time in, you see more of this use of public space in a way that is not so much structured around fear over how it's being used and whether or not it's being used correctly. Um, so I would just use that as one kind of example. I know there's lots of other countries and lots of other different ways that we could understand that. Um, but I think in the US, we do have this stigma that if you're existing in public, it's because something has gone wrong. Yeah. So in your guest appearance of the Ezra Klein show, because I guess I'm just doomed to forever reference that, um, <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, once that, or at least Ezra Klein mentioned once, how there might be this phenomena of like, Par like parents or like guardians and adults in general are trying to like shield the younger generation from things like awkwardness. Um, I think this type of research has been done well by some people like Jonathan Haidt. Um, but mm -hmm. like they, he brought up the example of the sleepovers. Like you remember, <laughs> do you remember that whole thing? Um, I do because I, I like was completely, you know, like blindsided by that conversation. I had no idea that was coming, but it was interesting. Yeah. Do you think, <laughs> do you think there are any like, specific like new like generational parenting norms that you think society should stigmatize to a slightly greater extent because it might inhibit uh the ways that we interact with each other well you know i think in general there's a lot of concern right now about um like what happens to kids when they leave the home when they leave the domestic unit and, you know, in the United States, that conversation is playing out a lot right now in terms of public schools and how curriculum in public schools is structured and what is okay to teach in public schools and what is not okay to teach in public schools. And also what is okay to stock in libraries and what is not okay. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with this um, feeling of, you know, concern about what happens when a child leaves the relatively curated and controlled space of the domestic unit or the home itself, right? That the home itself is subject to a kind of control that comes from the sense of ownership of the person who owns it or, you know, the, the parents there. And that when a kid leaves that space and goes out into the world that the parent can't necessarily predict or even control for what's going to happen there. And I think that's the reason a lot of these conversations are playing out in the way that they are right now has to do with that fear about control. But extending that even to just kind of like smaller issues surrounding parenthood and like awkwardness, since you brought up awkwardness, I do think it's interesting that we would want to um, like shield children from experiencing awkwardness because awkwardness is itself an expression of vulnerability, right? Like a, a moment where you feel like, 
that's another quote like that's the sort of like quote that i would expect to read from your book and be like this is really well written (laughs) well i appreciate that thank you but yeah so awkwardness is an expression of vulnerability it's a moment in which in feeling awkward you're realizing that you're not in control of something you can't predict what the outcome is going to be and maybe you don't even know how to act or how to respond so it's this improvisational moment it feels in between and that's why it makes us feel you know sort of scared and uncomfortable in that moment too I'm not sure why we would ever want to shield children from experiencing those kinds of moments though, because that's also where growth comes from, right? Growth comes from failure. It comes from risk and it comes from discomfort. If you're never uncomfortable, how do you ever get better at something? How do you ever progress or move on? So it's interesting for me, just going back to that conversation about, you know, parenting and like protecting kids from things that are uncomfortable that we would ever want to like shield them from the experience of discomfort that could be formative to growth and maturity in the first place. Yeah. And like a lot of the time we, but like we might think either consciously or subconsciously that like having a greater degree of control over our lives, whether it be who we get to interact with, like the importance of uh, certain, like the, the people that we get to interact with that all. And that all, obviously that all plays into like aspects of American culture, whether when it comes to private property and what private property is meant to be a metaphor for in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess uh, to final, well, next, next second to last question. Um, <laughs> what are some ways in which this fantasy of control and this idea that like having a greater control, sense of control over our lives benefits ourselves what are some ways in which that ends up misleading us in a like on a day-to-day basis when it comes to the decisions that we make and some how how can we rectify that um i think there's a sense that um that a lack of control is itself a problem um that it's like a that it's representative of like failure in some way that if you are not controlling a situation that that means that you are losing um, or like failing to make things go right for you. I think that's part of the conversation of vulnerability that we've been having here too and awkwardness as well. Um, But you know what that what that does on a social level um, is it also encourages us to avoid situations where we feel like we might find ourselves at a loss of control. Um, or without the ability to exert control. And, you know, there are really actually very few places in our lives where we have complete control. And they tend to be located, um, you know, within private spaces behind closed doors. Yeah, so and they're not really... nec- like we don't necessarily make the best decisions for ourselves when we have complete control. Of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, There's this, you know, um, quotation that I use in the book because it comes from the novelist Rick Moody. I love it. I think about it all the time about how like a person is never so much themselves as when they are alone in a hotel room. And I love that idea because it's like you're in an in-between space in a hotel room. You don't have access to the things that make you feel comfortable and familiar, like in your home space. And you have to make decisions about what you're gonna do and there's no one else there to help you. So it's like this moment of just like complete, loss of control in one way or another where you have to like you know decide what's going to happen and i i just think about it like as a sort of like interesting microcosmic understanding of what happens in that moment of indecision when we're not faced with the things that make us comfortable and familiar and instead have to make alternative choices so um yeah on a social level i would say you know that um what a sense of 
having control and being comfortable when we come to expect those things all the time, what that does is it teaches us to avoid situations where that is not going to be true or where we fear it's might not going to be true. And unfortunately, those situations are more numerous than the ones where we feel like we're on top of everything. <laughs> yeah, but maybe maybe the, the goal is to embrace the embrace the unpredictability of it all. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, final topic. So you actually, um, to my delight, you actually devoted an entire uh, chapter to like you as a musician and like the two bands that you were a part of, where your description would be one of them was good. The other one was popular. And but to my surprise, <laughs> what you sort of unpacked is that for you, you had like a better time when it came to like hanging out. You actually used the jazz improv metaphor for the popular band rather than the good band. Do you think there might like so a well, I, I'm I'm probably kind of tired of saying, could you elaborate on this? Because I know that like you already will, because that's a given. Um, but do you think there might be some kind of trade-off um, between the quality of like someone's final performance and like the actual like enjoyment that you get from the spontaneity of it? Or do you think like professional bands have like mastered that type of balance? Yeah, um, that's a question that I was interested in exploring in that chapter. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up um, so nicely there. Um, I will say that after the book came out, one of the members of um, of one of the former bands, the good band, you know, read the book and was asking me in a text message, like, so were we the good band or were we the popular one? I'm like, you know which one you are. Um, but, <laughs> um, but you're right. Um, I end up focusing on the story of my interactions with the more popular band. And I would say that I do that in part because um, that band challenged me in a lot of ways personally, um, but also socially, um, because it was a band where I felt like I had sort of less in common with people going into it um, than in the other case. And also because I learned at sort of a pretty early juncture in playing with those musicians that we were not necessarily there to make the most sophisticated music that had ever been heard but what we were there to do was to try to like have a good time and to convey having a good time and also to like make something that was very collaborative and a little bit messy and that was definitely not what the other band was doing which was making very more sophisticated com complex music that was more formal for presentation and that messiness became to me a really important quality of hanging out and um the ability to just sort of like revel in the flaws and the mistakes and the problems that came up in the conflicts but to have this ongoing conversation where we were sort of like experimenting and learning with each other and failing plenty of the time um was really really important for like my growth as a musician and also for my relationships and my friendships with them as well yeah uh, i guess that's that's kind of why i really like listening to like music where there's both a degree of sophistication to it and a degree of messiness to it at the same yeah. time. I used to, I used to like be constantly surprised when I played with that band. I used to be constantly surprised that people liked our music and they did. And I could never figure out why I would even ask like my partner, I'd be like, why do you think people like, like listen to us? And, and he would say, he's like, well, there's, there's something accessible about what you're doing. Like people can understand it because it's not too formal. It's not too constrained. It's not all planned out ahead of time. So I think it's more approachable. Like, like people can kind of get into it. So. Yeah. Like sometimes the thought processes of the people that are playing that, that transmits a little bit and is more easily understood by the actual audience when they're listening in real time. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Are you a musician? No, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> uh, well, I, I used to, I used to play the violin. I haven't done you it. You talk so like I'm a musician. So. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I, well, I'll, yeah, that's, that's a, a great, 
I, I guess I, I want to, uh, in, in the future, I want to like speak to music to musicians in a way that like tricks them into thinking that I am a musician, mm -hmm. um, that I'll <laughs> accomplish my goal in that regard. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Sheila Liming, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. This was an absolute blast. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.